Friends, today we have a very special treat to have guest preacher Leon Brown come and share with us this morning. He's a native of L.A. and returning there to do church planting work. Uh, Leon originally planted a church in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, and it was a Presbyterian church that was uh, racially and socioeconomically mixed. It was black and white, rich and poor, um, planted that church, saw it thrive, and as he transitions on, the African-American pastor who is taking the lead of that church was actually the man that mentored me and my family in church planting, Stan Morton. Uh, we got to come alongside of him when he planted a church in Lancaster City. So Leon goes on, Stan comes to Richmond, and it's exciting to see him there. There's three things you need to know about Leon and his time in Richmond that you're not going to hear on the prayer card. Let me give you a window into this man's ministry. Every single week he wore a robe in the pulpit. That's his style. He carried a gun to protect himself in the pulpit beneath the robe. And he preached from his Hebrew Bible. He's pursuing a PhD in Hebrew and so he brought his Hebrew text. I told him that he could only do one of those here. I said all three would be a little overwhelming. You got to pick one. And I saw him looking at his Hebrew app earlier. And so fortunately that's the one he chose. That's what he's going to do today. But Leon, he's returning to Los Angeles. He's going to, Lord willing, plant Montage Church there. It's already underway with the core group. He's here in Columbia to raise prayer and financial support. So you have his card. Consider how God is leading you to the nations to see church planting. But we're excited to come and have you preach this morning with us. Thank you, brother. Good morning, church. I figured that if I tried to bring uh, something other than my Hebrew app and my robe, I might not make it here. So I kept uh, all the firearms in California. Uh, I'm thankful for your pastor to invite me here to worship the living God with you and to preach God's word. So if you have an app or a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, we will consider together this morning verses 1 through 7. Before we hear from our God through the reading and the preaching of his most holy word, let us go to him yet again in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new. We thank you that though we sin according to John chapter 1, you give us more grace. And so would you be pleased, Father, to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray all these things through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And all God's people said, and amen. One of the benefits of wearing a robe is I, didn't have, I wouldn't have to try to figure out how to dress like this. Uh, you know, I could just wear my white shirt, black slacks, throw a robe over and be done. Uh, but uh, I wasn't afforded that. Uh, next time, I'll keep the gun at home, keep my Hebrew app at home, bring my robe. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the risen Christ. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt 
to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our most excellent God. What do you know about O.J. Simpson? I imagine, like many of you, all of his NFL statistics, though he played on two different teams over 10 years, were overshadowed by what you might recall from June 17, 1994. And if you weren't alive, then you can search this on YouTube. As O.J. Simpson was being driven down the 405 freeway in Southern California in a white Ford Bronco. And the headline was something like this, Simpson wanted for homicide. And so it kind of got our juices flowing, and this was actually the catalyst for a reality television show. We wanted to be right there every step of the way when he eventually was apprehended and taken to court. Many of us were watching. We were wondering, based on the evidence, whether or not O.J. was innocent or guilty. We all became attorneys at that point. We had the evidence. We, we had our firm convictions, but toward the end of that court case, Johnny Cochran, who was O.J.'s lawyer, had him stand up and take a glove that apparently was used in the murder of his ex-wife and had O.J. try to put it on, and his hand was just struggling to get it on. And Cochran responded to that by saying, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Shortly thereafter, Simpson was released. I'm sure all of you have your opinions to this day, whether or not Simpson should have gone to jail or not. But whether it's that court case or another one, I I often wonder, when you go into a court of law, if it seems the evidence is stacked against you, how do you emerge from that court case still innocent? What does it take to leave a courtroom and be declared innocent. Israel, in the book of Exodus, was enslaved for some 400 years. And God, through his great mercy, sent plague after plague upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians until finally he said, enough is enough. And he released the Israelites. They crossed through the Red Sea. Walls of water were on both sides of them. When Pharaoh and his army began chasing after them, those walls of water collapsed and they died. Israel looked back on the bodies and the animals that were floating in the Red Sea, and they offered praise to God because he was victorious in their battle. They have now been traveling for about two months when we get here to Exodus chapter 17. And it's in this chapter they enter into a courtroom. God is the judge. Israel is the plaintiff. Moses is the defendant. 
And for now, you are the spectator. But I can assure you that won't last long. All the congregation of the people of Israel, verse 1, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. There was likely this military formation as all of Israel were moving from one place to the next. And they finally arrived at Rephidim. And there they rested and realized that there was a problem. The problem was that there was no water to drink. Now for us, uh, if there's no water to drink, if there's no juice to drink, if there's no anything to drink, all we have to do is go down the street to the store. All we have to do is walk into our refrigerator. There were no refrigerators here. You couldn't schedule a lift and go to the store. There was nothing, absolutely nothing there for them. So they then looked to Moses and said, give us water to drink. There was no problem in the request. When you're thirsty, you want your thirst to be quenched. There was no problem with the request. I mean, there were in excess of a million people traveling here in this wilderness journey. Men, women, children, luggage, even livestock. And once you're traveling in the heat of the desert, surely you want something to drink. You can't even walk outside for 20 minutes during summer and not want something to drink. They've been walking for two months. But the problem wasn't with the request. The problem was with all the accoutrements that were surrounding the request. You know, my mother, I, I find myself saying things like, uh, you know, I'm just never going to be like her. And the older I get, I realize I am just like her. And uh, she used to say things to me when I would get in trouble. Uh, she would say things like, boy, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. And I knew, okay, I'm in trouble. I better hush my mouth. Uh, but there are other times when my speech was a bit stern to her and she would look at me and her eyes would get really focused. It was like she's pulling my soul out of my body. And she would say, I'm not one of your little friends. Uh, but there were other things she said that just kind of groomed and fashioned the way that I speak today. And she would say things like, son, I need you to know that you can get more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. And I've realized over the years that's true. Sometimes I listen, sometimes I tone, but I realize, wow, what my mother said all those years ago was true. You see, the request that Israel had toward Moses to be recipients of this water that wasn't the issue. It was what surrounded it. They, their words were laced with vinegar. Notice in verse 2, it says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. So the people just didn't request Moses, hey, we're thirsty, give us something to drink. They quarreled with Moses. And it is here we can realize that now they have entered into a court of law. That word quarreled is our clue. For example, Isaiah chapter 3. Job chapter 40, that word is employed in the context of legal disputes. Exodus chapter 23, same word. And in your subtitles in your Bible, it might say something like laws about justice. When in fact, this word that is translated quarreled here in verse 2 is translated lawsuit in Exodus chapter 23. Or how about Deuteronomy chapter 21, when a family has a drunkard or a gluttonous son and that drunkard or gluttonous son refuses to repent 
He says, I'm going to live this lifestyle no matter what. The parents then had the option to take this child to the city gates. The city gates in Israel was a place where they handled legal matters. And if the elders of the city declared that this son, in fact, was guilty, then they would stone him. What about Acts chapter 7? Stephen, recounting the ways of the Lord, found guilty of blasphemy, taken outside and stoned. So on the one hand, we have this word quarrel that lets us see that this is a court case. And on the other hand, we have stoning. The reason I brought that up is because if you scroll down to verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord and he says, they are almost ready to stone me. So Israel, as the plaintiff, has brought Moses in to this court of law. And yet it's not simply one, two, or three people leveling this charge at Moses. There are hundreds of thousands of people saying, Moses, here's the charge we're going to set at your feet. Attempted murder. Can you imagine the pressure that Moses feels? That's why, verse 4, he cried out to the Lord. Language that was used also when Israel was enslaved for those hundreds of years. They cried out to the Lord. So too did Moses. There was a problem that needed to be addressed. And Israel thought the way to deal with this was to bring Moses up on charges. They even said, why would you bring us out of here? We had it better in Egypt. Is it to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Never mind what God had already done. Just go back one chapter. They had no meat. They had no bread. God decided to bless them with both meat and bread. Go back just one more chapter to chapter 15. All they saw was bitter water. God made that bitter water sweet. So time and time again, God has supplied the needs of his people, though they doubted him. It happens again. They still doubt. They still say, Moses, you're the problem. You know, I find it interesting, (coughs) excuse me, that uh, how God's people respond when they have an issue. And while I'm not your pastor, I'm sure some of you respond the same way. Uh, when, when you have an issue with God, one of the things that you do, because, you know, you can't just reach out and touch God. I don't know when the last time you touched God. If you do, let me know. <laughs> but because you can't touch God when you have a problem, you'll reach out and touch God's pastor. Because that's the way that you take out your frustration. You see, God's people have an issue with God, but instead they're going to level their, their accusation against Moses, God's servant. And so what Moses does now is he helps them to get their theology straight. He, as the defendant, has to defend himself. That's why he says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why are you bringing me into this court of law? I'm simply obeying the Lord. I obeyed him when I led you out of here. I'm obeying him as I take you to Mount Sinai. I'm I'm obeying him as I take you to the promised land. Why is your issue with me? And then he takes a slight turn. He says, let me tell you the one with whom you actually have the issue. It's the Lord. That's why Moses asked the next question. He says, why do you test the Lord? You know, this event here made history. 
It's nothing uh, akin to the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, Maybe it's more akin to September 11th, 2001. I don't know. It's just one of those things you just can't forget, right? This made history. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses referenced this issue in saying that no one tests the Lord. That's why in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus references this event. And he says, you're not going to test me, Satan, when the devil took him up to a high place and said, if you cast yourself down, hey, the angel will take care of you. Don't worry about it. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. No one tests the Lord. Moses is asking the people of God, why do you do that when he's provided so well for you? You've never had a need that he has not met. You may not have been in the circumstances that you wanted to be in for those hundreds of years, but God was still with you. In the New Testament, there's a segment that references this event as well particularly in 1 Corinthians 10, where the author of that epistle says, hey, we can, we can look back at the wilderness wanderings. We can look back at all of the stuff that, that Israel underwent. We can use that as an example of how not to be. My mother used to say that to me. She'd say, honey, I'm a good example of how not to be. We're supposed to look at this situation of Israel in the wilderness and discern that that's not the way that we want to be. But far too often, I'm afraid, this is exactly the way that we are. When our situations don't go the way that we want them to, we think that we're just meditative. We think that, you know, we're just praying to God when in actuality we're shaking our fist at God. Saying, Lord, if I can paint the picture, I would have painted this quite differently. We put ourselves in the throne room of God quite often. And I don't have to be a visiting pastor to know that each of you does it. I've been a pastor long enough to know you all do. It doesn't matter the degrees you have. It doesn't matter the letters you have behind your name. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. We enjoy being God. It happens in our relationships. Lord, I can't stand this man. Why would you give him to me? Lord, why can't I find a job? As if he hasn't provided for you up until that point. God, why this? God, why that? There's nothing wrong with asking God why. But remember, like Israel, it's the accoutrements that surround it. Are we saying it with our words laced with vinegar or with honey? Well, Moses, as the defendant, not only does he try to set their theology straight by saying, hey, your real issue is with the Lord. Why do you test him? But he goes on then to to speak to the Lord. And notice, not only does he say they are ready to stone me, again, honing in on the reality that this is a court case. He's the defendant. They're declaring him guilty of attempted murder. But he also goes on to say, what shall I do with this people? Do you remember the garden? Uh, Adam has a wife. And then from seemingly out of nowhere, Satan just kind of enters the scene, causes the man and the woman to sin. The Lord then enters the scene. And as he begins interacting with the man, do you remember what Adam said? Lord, it was the woman whom you gave me. It was all of a sudden God's fault for, 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 for doing that. 
Or, or think about it, for example, for those of you who, ha- who have kids. My wife does it to me somewhat regularly. I come home after a day of, of working. She's been laboring at home. Her job is, it seems like it's ten times harder than mine. The kids have been acting up. And as soon as I walk to the door, my wife says, I'm like, honey, get your kids. Like, your kids? Like, aren't they our kids? How'd it go from our, us? You know? <sighs> it, it just seems like one of the things we do is distance ourselves when something negative happens. What shall I do with this people? If you read up until this point, Moses has been saying, these are my people, God, and I'm in the process of helping delivering them, but now they're sinning. It's this people. Well, God has a response for Moses. And so verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, here's what you're going to do. I need you to pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. So as you can think about it, oftentimes in a courtroom, you have the judge seated upon his throne, the plaintiff is there, the defendant is there, and then you have ushered into the room the witnesses. So now you have the elders of Israel as witnesses. He says, what I need you to do is take the staff with which you struck the Nile and and go. So not only do I want you to be before these witnesses, be before these elders of Israel, but I need you to take that sign of judgment. It was the same symbol of judgment that you had when you put it in the Nile River and the water turned to blood. Take that with you. And when you finally arrive, behold, behold. Sometimes I think we need to slow down with what we read. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses looked off into the distance and behold, there was a bush that was burning that was not being consumed. When angels often appear, you read, behold. In John chapter 1, when Jesus arrived, John the baptizing one looked off into the distance and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is our indication that something out of the ordinary is about to happen. So now as the Lord is speaking to Moses, he says, Behold, I will stand before you. Think about the elevation here on this stage. Uh, This gentleman right here is standing before me. He's my subject. I am the one who is elevated. Subjects stand like this before kings. But now the Lord's using that language. And he says, I am going to take the posture of being a servant. And I am going to stand before you. And I'm going to do so on this rock at Horeb. So take that symbol of judgment, take that staff as I stand upon this rock and I want you to strike it. And the moment that you strike it, water's going to come from the rock and people are going to drink. And that's exactly what happened, the end, right? I mean, they did name the place Massa and Meribah, verse 7, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. They tested the Lord. They wanted to know, is the Lord among us or not? Get this. As if they didn't see the the pillar of fire by night and the cloud uh, by day. God was clearly in their midst, and yet they refused to trust him. And so he again displayed his faithfulness by giving them water from this rock. Can I share something with you? Well, I've been sharing the whole time. Actually, this is not sharing. This is preaching. I didn't come up here to share. We can go to a coffee house if you want me to share with you. I'm glad the story didn't end here. 
I'm glad this wasn't just a cute Sunday school Bible lesson type message where we hear of God quenching Israel's thirst. If that's where this story ended, then I think we would all be lesser for it. But the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, interpreted this story for us. And along with telling us that as Israel wandered through the wilderness, they were an example of how not to be, he also told us that all ate the same spiritual food, that is Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, and it's very interesting that if you were to look in your Bibles, that word rock is capitalized. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So back in Exodus chapter 17, when you see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant-keeping God, the one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence from nothing, absolutely nothing. The theory of evolution can't explain what God did. Who was it? That stood upon that rock. And who was it that took the punishment upon himself for the sins of Israel? Israel was the one who sinned against God. Moses didn't have anything to do with that. Israel tested the Lord. Israel was guilty. And yet God, the Lord, and yet God, the Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, stood upon that rock and was struck by that instrument of judgment so that God's people can be fed. You see, the Lord has been in the business of taking care of his people, not simply physically, but also spiritually for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And this was just a small taste of what God would do thousands of years later. He wasn't simply going to stand upon a rock. But upon a rock, he would be hoisted up upon a cross. And there, because his people, Jew and Gentile, were guilty, the wrath of the Father would be poured out upon him. That was the court case. If the books were open today for my life and your life, do you know what it would say? Guilty. No hung jury in this case. The glove does fit. You can't acquit. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, despite that guilt, the Son of God took on the likeness of sinful flesh to go to a cross to receive the wrath of his Father, to be forsaken by God, to be taken down off that tree, put in the tomb, and get up out that tomb three days later for our justification so that when we repent of sin, when we trust in Jesus, we now have this right standing with God, having had our sins forgiven and having had something granted to us as well, namely the perfection of Jesus Christ. We need both. We need something taken away. We need something given. God did that for us in Jesus. And we have this small glimpse of how he would do it way back when in Exodus chapter 17. You know, there's a reason why I titled this message The People's Court. <laughs> uh, because we're all in court. 
John 3.36 is very clear. The wrath of God abides upon us. We are condemned already. Case closed. Unless God chose to do something for us. And beloved, in Jesus Christ, he has. He has loved us and gave himself to us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So that we can taste of the true living water, John chapter 4. And know that our God is good. And our God is good all the time. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God is still good. And he's going to navigate you through that. If you're struggling to pay your bills, if you're struggling in your relationship, if you're struggling with your children, God is still good. And he's going to take care of you. I can assure you of that. There are many promises that I might break to you. Especially if I come back, I might think of some things to lie about. But one thing is certain. God will take care of you. And you know that because you are guilty in a court of law. And yet because of Jesus, he still declares you innocent. Well, uh, I didn't have three points for you. I'm not a three-point preacher. But I just give you one. And Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, you're innocent. Beloved, case closed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God to us. We thank you that though we, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds, are guilty, you have provided a way for us to be made innocent. You have given us that rock, and that rock was Christ who took the judgment upon himself for us. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, you are rich in mercy. Oh, your grace abounds. So help us, Father, to believe that and to live in light of that. God, please hear our prayers. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, and amen.